worship you. No, prepare our minds and our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I know that this might come as a shock to some of you, but um, I'm a pretty competitive person, and I learned to play the game of risk while living in Texas. We were involved with a, a couple of small churches, and the youth pastor was a gem by the name of Mark Shriver. And when I started playing, and, and eventually got my dad playing and so on, and we would go over to Mark's house sometimes, and we, we would play on a, a Saturday or Sunday afternoon uh, and play the game of risk. Who's familiar with the game of risk, the game of you know, world domination? Okay, Isn't it shocking that I would be attracted to a game of world domination? Yes. Anyways, um, this particular, I think it was a Sunday afternoon, I had a plan. So my dad and I went, and the three of us were playing Risk at Mark's house. Before the game, I took my, myself and Mark, and I said, can you come here, Mark? And we went into his bathroom, and I said, I want to enter into a secret alliance with you against my father. And we can relentlessly drive him off the board and come down between me and you who's going to be, you know, master of, of the world. And he smiled and he said he agreed to that. Well, as the game went on, uh, that didn't happen. My dad and I ended up going to war with each other. And Mark kind of had this smirk on his face and he ended up dominating the world. He was the winner. Then he broke out laughing, and I've never seen a man laugh so hard, and he revealed that before I had gone to my dad, my dad had gone to him secretly <laughs> to form a secret alliance to take me out. Okay? Like father, like son. I wrote down here that the irony of the story is that the very secret that was to win me the game ended up being the key to my defeat. And I learned that day that secrets can be dangerous, which is why you know, I don't like to keep secrets. And I think that you should be that way too because that's the way God is. Um, God does not like keeping secrets. Um, some of you may quote to me this verse that says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Well, yeah, he has some secrets, obviously. But when it comes to us in our lives, he says that the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. We are God's friends. John 15, 15. It says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Now listen to this. For all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. That's a pretty big sweeping statement, isn't it? And... Luckily for us, in the context of telling us how it's all going to end, Jesus has said this, I have told you very plainly in advance what is going to happen. So in keeping with his generous nature, God has given us great detail of how the end will, quote-unquote, play out under his sovereign control. And so my intent this morning is to give you I hesitate to call it, and I don't call it a timeline of events, but really an order of events of how things are going to play out. Okay. Now, what we're going to do is I'm going to put the verses up here. I'm not going to put them up 
the entire verse, just the reference, so you can write it all down. As always, I will send this sermon out to you. But we're going to start, and we'll get halfway through, and the second part will be next week. But I want you to know how things are going to play out, and I want you to see the great detail that the Scriptures point to, so you do not have to be afraid of what is going to happen, okay? I think you'll be shocked at how much God has revealed. And so this is really the order of events. So turn your Bibles to here. Most of the other verses I'll just put up here, but I do want you to turn here. You're going to be familiar with this because the question was asked by the disciples, basically, how is it all going to end? And he says this, Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one must lead you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. And boy, isn't that true, especially today. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely in the beginning, merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will lead many. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So all those general signs that we've talked about real briefly are happening and will continue to happen. The false Christs, the wars, the natural disasters, uh, persecutions, apostasies, lawlessness, worldwide gospel proclamation. But what did I tell you? The closer to the return of Christ, what will happen? The greater the intensity and frequency of these signs. Now, the question that we all want to wonder, want to ask, and have answered is, well, how bad will it get, right? Well, this is, again, I'm going to read this. You can just write this verse down. This is what this Revelation 8 7 through 12 says. It's a fraction of what it says. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. A third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers, the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck. So a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Now, as I told you before, in order for, for me to really explain this, I just chose to go more of a little literal interpretation, because when you go figuratively, you can get into a lot of trouble. But we do have to keep in mind that this is what is called apocalyptic literature. And it can be interpreted either literally or figuratively, or some combination of both. Now, the question is, how do we know which, when to use which interpretive method? If Revelation 8, what I just read to you, is interpreted literally, it paints a picture 
of a living hell on earth, does it not? How could anyone survive in that environment? You know, a third of the earth is burned up. You know, the ocean, a third of it is, is blood. There's really hardly any fresh water to drink, and so on and so forth. If this were literally true, why would Jesus say this in Matthew 24, 37 40? I think I put that up there. No, I didn't. But you're there. Look at verses 37 and 40 of Matthew. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. My question is this. If a third of the earth and vegetation is burned up, a third of the sea is blood, a third of fresh water is undrinkable, a third of the sun, moon, and stars are no longer giving off light, and days are mostly darkened, then how can life go on as usual? People are eating, drinking, and marrying, and giving in marriage? Does that make sense? No. How can the world not comprehend, at the very least, that there's some form of judgment, probably God's judgment, is imminent, with such chaos that would be in the world? I think it just strains rationality to think that people could be so blind to the obvious. How could life go on as normal? I don't think it would. But a figurative interpretation allows for a more reasonable understanding of these verses in Revelation. And basically, it's at the time of tribulation, it's just, it will be much worse than it is today, folks, but not the bleak picture of a nearly uninhabitable earth that a literal interpretation provides. So that's a struggle when we go and look at these passages. But the first thing that's going to happen is all these signs that we need to be looking for, okay? And they will get, there will be an increase in frequency and intensity of these signs. But what did I tell you was the key sign to be looking for? You remember? It's called the abomination of desolation, Okay? Daniel 9.27, I'll read it to you real quick. This is where it references it. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. There's where we see it. Matthew 24.15. Therefore when you see, and this is Jesus speaking, the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 5, I think is what it is. Yeah, or 4, actually. It says this, Paul writing, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless, meaning Jesus, unless the apostasy comes first. Now, what, what apostasy is he talking about? What Jesus referred to. People are going to be leaving the church because of this great persecution, the great tribulation. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who is the man of lawlessness? We believe what Daniel and Jesus are referring to is an individual, uh, the Antichrist, the son of destruction. What does he do? Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So we now, Daniel, Jesus, and Paul all speak of this sign. 
Now, this is where, you know, how do we apply this and understand this? I, generally speaking, most theologians believe that some sort of charismatic, worldwide, political, and probably spiritual leader will arise in the mix of some sort of conflict. This conflict is probably going to be centered around the Middle East. In our time, I think it's safe to say, most of the conflict in the world has been centered around where? The Middle East. Okay? This person will rise, broker a false peace. The Bible talks about that in many places. And this temporary peace will be shattered when his true nature is revealed. He will demand to be worshipped as God. Now, you know what the, the two competing beliefs are within the church. How's it going to happen? Well, there's a dispensational belief that God will begin working once again with, with Israel and Jerusalem. They will rebuild the temple. They will start their animal sacrifices. He will go in there and say, stop that, worship me, and then the persecution comes. And the church, of course, is already taken out in a rapture. That's a dispensational belief. The other belief is that the true Israel of God is the church, and somehow this individual will rise up in connection with the world and with the church and demand to be worshipped. When you see that sign, however it plays out, and again, I am holding the, these things loosely, as everyone that I read does, that false peace is shattered, and I do know this, that's when the intense persecution begins against the church, and I believe also against the nation of Israel. And we'll get into that in a moment. But the key thing is that's the sign you need to be looking for. Okay? How it's going to play out, your guess is as good as mine, based upon what the Bible says. And I've given you both options for the most part. What we'll see within the church at that time is there'll be many will fall away. That's the apostasy that both Paul and Jesus refer to. People are going to fall away because they're going to be put to the test. No, here's the key thing, though. Through God's protection, what will happen to true believers? Two things. They will endure. Why will they endure? You will find a stubborn energy in you. I will not bend the knee. You may know it's there, maybe you know it's there, but that will be there because you will endure. Why is that possible? Because within you, that's the Spirit of God empowering you to endure it. Now, you may lose your life, but there's a good chance that you won't because God protects his children, okay? And through this endurance, proving you're his ch children, you will be saved. Those who endure to the end, you know that verse? Finish it. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Does everybody know that? Okay? That is the real sign of a believer, by the way. That in love. Now, this man of lawlessness, who we believe is the Antichrist, I, I, I don't believe that God is fully done with Israel. I think, as I said last week, he's going to go back and, and, and begin a, a, a cleansing and, and we'll deal with Israel. But there's going to be also, I think, a war against Israel. And I'll get into why it's going to be Israel with the intent of exterminating the Jews. And it's just ironic that this is, again, happening in our time with what happened yesterday. So, since the death of Christ, what's happened to the church? It's grown, but it's also been grown through persecution, and it's still, there's still persecution in the church. Have the Jewish people been persecuted? 
if God is done with them, then why are they still being persecuted? So that's why I think will happen because of what it says in Zechariah. There's going to be another final war against the Jews and the church and the this person, this Antichrist, will lead an armies of the world to destroy the Jews and the city of Jerusalem. And you'll understand what I'm saying here in a little bit. And that battle at the end is called what? Battle of Armageddon. This is where we find it in Revelation 16, 13 to 14, 16. It says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world. Who are the kings of the whole world? Vladimir Putin, Joe Biden, whoever these rulers are at the time, Jack Trudeau, okay, you get the idea? Those are the kings of the world. Um, to gather them, now he is, God is sovereign, orchestrating this, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. What's the great day of God, by the way? What is it called? The day of the Lord. Okay? And God is orchestrating all this. The great day of God, the Almighty. Verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay. Now, so we see here from this verse that demons are going to gather rulers from all over the world to lead the great armies against Israel. But ironically, those agencies of judgment will be judged themselves, as we'll find out. The focal point of the battle will be Jerusalem in the plain of Megiddo in the north. If there's Jerusalem, up here is the Megiddo Valley, okay? Although the battleground will extend throughout the land of Israel, we talked about that last week. But the battle is for two purposes. Number one, under God's sovereign control, God will use the battle of Armageddon to purge unbelievers from Israel. That is the cleansing that Zechariah talks about. Number two, under his sovereign control, God will use the battle of Armageddon to judge the nations. And it's written out clearly in Zechariah 12 and 13 from last week. And this is where we pick up things in Zechariah, okay? Zechariah 12. He wrote this, verses two and three. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, and there's the war, it will also be against Judah, meaning all of Israel. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. We went over this last week. But my focus this morning is it says all the nations. But where do they come from? And these are, there are four armies that the Bible says are represented in Armageddon. I put this up here for you, so if you want to read that. Just to underscore the point, it is a worldwide battle. All the nations, the Bible makes it very clear and in great detail. There's armies from the west, north, south, and east. Okay? This is where if you understand and, and, and really study your Bible, you can see the detail in the, in, the, in the kind of like a timeline, in the order of events of how things are going to play out. So after the, the son of the man of loss is revealed, what's going to happen? Tense persecution, apostasies, okay? 
and then this war will begin. Okay? And as they wage war against Israel, I said that the smaller towns and villages of Israel identified as Judah, remember from last week? They're empowered by the Lord. And they inflict heavy losses upon this far superior army because who is empowering them? God is, exactly. This is verses 6 and 8 of Zechariah 12. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. Verse 8. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And so when the great armies of the world converge on Jerusalem, this also happens, that their weapons and soldiers will largely be ineffective. This is verse 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I'll watch over the houses of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Now this fits with what God has done in the past. What did he do with Gideon? Remember? 300 men did what? They didn't even attack. They went around their enemy, blew the trumpet of the horns, and what happened? God sent a frenzy and confusion and fear amongst the armies, and they destroyed themselves. Something like that is going to happen in Israel, outside of the city of Jerusalem. At that time, the people, back in, now we're back in Zechariah 12, the people remember the promise of God's protection. Because Jerusalem is, to this day, since 1948, it's not a spiritual nation like it was previously. It is a bunch of people that have been scattered that come together, but they're not practicing Judaism like they did. It's mainly a secular state. Okay, This unbelieving nation, for the most part, is going to remember the word of God because they're seeing God protect them. And it's the only reason why all this vast superior army is not seeing that much success. That's why verse 5 says, Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. It will be a bloody battle, folks. A bloody battle. This is what Revelation 14.20 says. And it's happening outside the city of Jerusalem. The winepress has trodden outside the city. And blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. I think the best way to interpret it is it's just going to be a very bloody battle. But it hasn't even hit the city of Jerusalem yet. And Jesus said about this battle, right before he returns, in Matthew 24, 27, and 28, this, For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Look at this, verse 28. Where their corpse is, there their vultures will gather. So these bodies are going to be strewn across the land. There will be vultures flying and so on. So great loss of life. And so apparently, the military might at the world of the world, represented by these four armies, they're nearly slaughtered outside the city of Jerusalem. The bloodshed will be unprecedented as symbolized by blood as deep as a horse's bridle for 200 miles. And although the nation of Israel as a whole is still in a state of unbelief, what is happening is God is preparing them for the day of their salvation when they will look on the one whom they have pierced. 
So in spite of a siege set against Israel, God will bring about the deliverance and salvation of his people. And that was really the focus of last week's message. It is Israel, or it is precisely at the siege of Jerusalem that Zechariah 14 begins. So turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 14. Because it opens with time having passed, and the city of Jerusalem is for the most part defeated now. It's stripped of its possessions and honor. It is seemingly conquered by the world's armies. And the conquering armies of the world are reveling in their spoils. Zechariah 14, 1 through 2. You there? Okay. Behold, a day is coming for, for the Lord when the spoil taken from what you from, from you will be divided among you. So he's talking to his people. You've been defeated. The spoil is taken from you. It's going to be given back, and you're going to divide it. Verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. Who is gathering these nations? God is, okay? To battle, and the city will be captured. Then houses plundered, women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Now, these verses go into greater detail what Jeremiah calls this, and it's Jeremiah 37. This is the Jacob's trouble. This verse right here is talking about Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 37 says, 30 verse 7, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he will be saved from it. So imagine if you are in Jerusalem and you're seeing this battle take place and you're, you can't believe that the surrounding cities and everything and towns have held off as long and now the armies converge in Jerusalem. It's basically taken, but the world's armies are, are celebrating a little too early because there's a group of people that are left. You see that? And who is that? The remnant. A remnant survives. And the best interpretation I can give you is, again, so that half that is killed or taken away will be unbelievers. And surviving half will be the believing remnant. Because Zechariah has already told us that two-thirds of the nation would perish. That's chapter 13, verse 8 of Zechariah. And now we here learn that half the city of Jerusalem will perish. While these numbers may not be literal, they communicate a great loss of life as God cleanses Israel as he prepares to save her. At this darkest hour for Israel, and I mean both the nation and the church, the sign of the return of the Son of Man appears in a darkened sky. And that's the third sign you'd be looking for. And what has God done? You remember? He's dimmed the lights before the sun's return in glorious fashion. Matthew 24, I'll just read this to you, verses 29 and 30. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power 
in great glory. Now Luke records it like this in Luke 21, 25 through 27. There will be signs and sun and moon and stars. And the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves. Men fainting from fear in the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And so when you combine Matthew and Luke's writings, you get a kind of dramatic scene and sobering scene as well. And you put it simply, the entire universe as we know it begins to disintegrate. As the world disintegrates, gravity fails. That's why the tides are instantly thrown into chaos. Stars begin to tumble out of the places. In Revelation, it's described like this. It's Revelation 6, 14 to 17. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, and they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits in the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It also says this, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened. And just picture these things in your mind if you can. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it, it's called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, symbolizing that he's going to war. And going to war for who? His people, to save them. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has written a name, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, that's some of the verses. Look at what the Old Testament says. Joel records this same thing. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Verse 15, the sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. Isaiah says the same thing. Isaiah 13, 9. The day of the Lord comes with cruel wrath and anger. The stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause its light to shine. And Zechariah, Zechariah 14, simply states this in verses 6 and 7. And again, see this detail, the same thing over and over and over and over throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. I say all that because I want you to see, and I believe, that those things will literally happen. There will be a darkened sky. There is too much verses 
in the Old New Testament for me to just take that figuratively. Okay? It would make sense. In a darkened night, all of a sudden this light appears, will every eye see that then? Probably yes. Now, it is a unique day, Zechariah 14. I'm going to explain something to you here. Well, why is it a unique day? I can only tell you that God only knows all that it involves, but it won't be day and it won't be night. It will come to pass that at evening time there will be light, although how man will be able to know it is evening, only God knows. But what this means is the universe, verses 6 and 7 of Zechariah 14, and all the verses I just shared with you about his coming, the universe is going to go into an imbalance. All that we understand as night and day ends at that moment. All the stars fall. The sun and the moons are all gone. And when Christ comes, it's a new kind of day. Well, how is it a new kind of day? He will become day. So that even when it's evening, it will be light. Because he'll be coming in blazing glory. And that glory is, of course, called what? The Shekinah glory. But what happens next after that? Well, at his coming, now picture this, heaven is opened, right? We've read that. The sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky. That's the blazing light of the Shekinah glory. And then the world hears a loud voice and music in the form of a trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with what? A shout with the voice of the archangel. There's a loud voice, and here's the music, with the trumpet of God. So the voice of the archangel shouts, the last trumpet blows, and Jesus begins his descent from heaven, followed by his army. Now, who makes up his army? Well, obviously, there are saints, okay? They make up his army. We can see that very clearly here. 1 Thessalonians 3.13. At his coming, saints come with him. Also, if you notice not, angels come with him. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then will repay every man according to his deeds. And what I think is totally cool is while our Lord is descending. So again, heaven's opened up. The sign appears. Heaven opens up. Okay? There's this great light. There's the voice of the angel shouting. There's a trumpet. He begins his descent, followed by his army. Okay? What happens next? Well, a great mystery unfolds. It's found here. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, that's the angel, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now watch this. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. This also happens right here. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, and we will not all die. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, 
and we will be changed. So after the trumpet blows at our Lord's return, saints in heaven who have already died, so all the Old and New Testament saints, and who would that be? So if you have a believing father or mother, someone you know, they're going to be there. Jacob will be there. Joseph will be there. David will be there. Okay? What happens is those who already died, they are resurrected. Now what does that mean? And what does the dead in Christ rise first mean? Well, the saints in heaven with God exist as what? Most likely spirits, right? After the trumpet blows at Jesus' return, their bodies are resurrected. And don't worry if you've been cremated or not. Your dust is whatever it is. He can, has the ability to put your body back together. Okay? All right. The trumpet blows. Those bodies are resurrected and instantly transformed into an eternal glorified body and united with your spirit as you are descending with the Lord. Okay? So lose weight now. Die thin, right? Because when you return, right? Then believers who have endured the, the tribulation, what happens to them? They are caught up in the air and their bodies are instantly transformed, as it says here, in the twinkling of an eye, and return with the Lord with what? Their eternal glorified bodies, because that is the Christian's destiny. When I say it's, it's glorification, that is what it means. And that eternal body, that glorified eternal body, is not subject to decay, to death anymore, or anything. It's made to live forever, and that's what will happen as you come with him. And that's all the time we have because it's already 11.30. But we're going to see God do something absolutely cool next week, and I'll explain to you why I believe he returns to Jerusalem and what he does and the battle he fights and what happens after all of that. Now, I found it helpful to put this sermon together, and I thought it might be a good thing for you guys to do this as well, to meditate on what I just shared with you. This order of events, as best as I can put it together, from what the Bible says. But I do want you to see, please see this. God has told us in advance what is going to happen in, in very great detail. Because I can tell you what's going to happen next. Two things, a little preview. Those Jews, ethnic Jews, that are left, I'm going to tell you what they're going to do from last week's sermon. They're going to look and see him, and what are they going to do? They're going to mourn as they begin to believe in him. And what's an unbelieving world going to do? They're going to run in fear because they know what's coming. And that is even the coolest thing that's going to happen. You'll learn that next week. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your wonderful promises and, and the truths that you reveal to us in your word. And thank you that you have chosen to save us, that our destiny is to be glorified. And we long to be with you. 
and we know that we will be with you forever. Not subject to death and to sin and to sorrow and to shame. All that will be gone and forgotten as we dwell in your presence and rejoice just being with you and worship you and love you and glorify you. So encourage us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Very good. Have a great day. Hope the rain holds off and God bless you.